This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players of Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players, including the one that is here with us today, Mr. Lee Sklar. Thank you for being here, man. I appreciate man, you. It is a pleasure to be here. And I, man, there's nothing in my life that I enjoy more than a bunch of freaks. So <laughs> this, is, this is perfect, man. Let's get freaky. Well, amen to that. Amen to that. So uh, tell me, how you doing, man? How's everything with, uh, you know, all the craziness going on the last year and a half or so? Well, you know, I mean, it's kind of like uh, what, what everybody's gone through where I, I was sitting there uh, with our band. Uh, we, we have a band called The Immediate Family, which we can get into and discuss. But uh, we did a thing called the Rock Legends Cruise. It was one of those cruise things out of Florida down to the Grand Caymans and back with like Roger Daltrey and Nancy Wilson and Mark Farner is all these people were on it. And we were on the ship. And when we got off the boat, basically right after that is when COVID struck. Uh, and I, I was looking at, at that point, a year's worth of work ahead of me. I was really busy and it disappeared like a fart in a hurricane. It was <laughs> like, like over immediately. And, uh, and it, by nature, I'm I'm a person that doesn't take downtime well. So I, I found myself just kind of sitting and really looking at a, a full book that just got erased and trying to figure out what to do like so many other people and ended up having, I mean, financially I've had a horrible time, but I've actually had some of the most creative and busiest time uh, I've ever had during this past year and a half. I, 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 I created a YouTube channel. I did a book. I started recording at home. Um, our band is like going like gangbusters, even though we're not on the road, there's all kinds of amazing stuff. going. So it, it, you know, uh, there's an element of maybe a little bit of guilt, uh, for me, the fact that, um, I've seen so much suffering and I've, and I've lost a, a, a number of friends to COVID and others that are long haulers now that are going to be looking at, you know, issues for a long time ahead. Um, and friends that have lost their businesses and everything. So on, on that side of it, it's a real double-edged sword to have compassion and understanding for the loss that people have experienced, um, but to have taken it and really uh, made some really good lemonade out of a big sour lemon that was handed to us. Well, amen to that. Let's talk about your YouTube channel, because uh, we talked a little bit about uh, that before we started this, but... Uh, it sounds very interesting. Tell me about well, it. Well, the good thing is, like we talked a few minutes ago, but at this point in my life, I can't remember anything we said. So this is all completely fresh when I start over again. Well, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so what happened with, with the YouTube thing was uh, before COVID, you know, kind of one of the last things before COVID, we had been on the road with Phil Collins doing his Not Dead Yet tour, which was about two years out there on the road off and on. 
And uh, we were doing, you know, at minimum arenas and and a lot of uh, stadiums on the tour. It was a huge tour. Amazing. And when I when I when that all finished and COVID um, started, I had some uh, some bass players writing to me saying, "Oh man, we saw you like in Germany or Argentina or wherever that you know they were writing from." And they said, "Man, the show sounded really great. It was unbelievable." Um, but you know, by the nature of those venues, they said it was some of the detail in the bass part was was harder to hear. So I I thought about it for a minute and I contacted um, Michelle Collin, who was our front of house um, mixer and asked him to send me a board mix of one of the shows. And he, he sent me this sh- a show from Adelaide, Australia. And so what I did was I, I loaded it into my laptop, have a uh, a little Bose speaker, you know, about, about this big, um, uh, and just Bluetooth that right next to the uh, um, laptop and uh, set up a little bass amp next to me. And um, I, I've done my, my entire channels all been on my iPhone. And um, so what I did was I, 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 I practiced a little bit trying to figure out how to mix. What I would do was play a track um, coming through the speaker, but then I played the part through my amp a little bit louder than the track so you could hear the entire bass part in detail on top of the track. And I decided to start with the first song of the show and every day I was going to do another song. Okay. And um, by the third song, the third day of it, I had people writing to me going, man, we love your YouTube channel. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I I had no idea that this would be a channel. I was just showing some examples and throwing them up on, on YouTube. And so I continued every day doing this and people started writing in, in the comment section on it. And, uh, by the time I got, uh, I got to almost the end of the show, I have one song left that I haven't done and that's take me home, which is how we would always close Phil's show with. So I figured I'm going to leave that song for maybe in, in about 2000 videos from now, when I decide I'm done with my channel, that'll be the last video I put up will be take me home. Like we always <laughs> ended our show. Um, but I got to the end, uh, basically the end of the, sh- of Phil's set. And I, and, and I was getting like all these people signing up for it. And I kind of thought, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Cause this actually is something that's happening. So I, I started, uh, I, I went into all music and cause I never have looked at my discography or anything like that. So uh, I start- can I just say, I, I looked at that today and I was blown away. If, uh, if there is any bass player, I'm sure there isn't one, but there, if there is any bass player that hasn't heard of Lee Sklar or heard a song, you've definitely heard a song that he's playing on for sure. But sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted no, to that's say fine. If kudos, we're having a dialogue. High, high five, amazing. I was seriously just blown away by the sheer volume of amazing songs that you've done. Okay, and, go ahead. And that's and that's really about maybe two thirds to three quarters of really? what I've done. There's a ton of stuff that's not uh, on that. That 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 uh, I, when I started looking through it, I went, "Oh God, well, what about you know Anthony Newley? What about um, Andy Williams? What about you know, um, you know?" I mean, I just started thinking of all these things that aren't listed on there, um, which is fine. I'm so what happened was so I, I started looking at it and I decided to start pulling things off of that and and 
I haven't devoted tons of time to this. So what I did was I would um, pick a song. I mean, everything that that's on my YouTube channel is something I've played on, except for I think one one song, which was uh, Rubber Band Man by the Spinners, because Bob Babbitt's bass part on that is one of the greatest bass lessons one could ever ask for. Um, yes, sir. Yes, it sir. Is a magic uh, part. And I and I played along with it on the because uh, it's one of these things I learned for clinics just to tell people I said, now dig this bass part. And uh, uh, but ninety nine point nine percent of everything on my channel is what I've played on. So what I would do each day is find a song, kind of wrap my head around it and and then and, and then perform it, you know, along with the track underneath it. And uh, and I got into talking about who the other players were on it, producers, the um, what studio we were at, you know, tell stories about the artists. And when I first started doing these, I, they were like about four minutes long. And most of them now are up around 25 to 30 minutes on each video. Um, so that's that's really elaborate. That's amazing. Yeah. What's the name of the channel? Uh, it's just go on YouTube and pull up Leland Sklar. Okay. That's it. it. It it'll pop up, and as of today, I think today was six. Huh? I, I, hold on, excuse me, while I whips this out, um, <laughs> I will I will tell you right now. Um, Hit me with some today, knowledge. Today was my six hundred ninety third video. Awesome. Um, and and I haven't missed a day yet. I mean, I I've been on the road. I've been doing things. I make sure every day I get something posted. So. So th this has been great because it's kind of made me go back and revisit things. Like I played um, most of the songs from Spectrum with Billy Cobham. I, I put up Stratus and Red Baron and um, uh, Tari and Matador and all these songs that we did. So um, I, I've put up Toto and Lyle Lovett and, and Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt and... Uh, um, Hall and Oates and all, you know, just a, a whole variety. I try to keep it um, interesting on a daily basis. And like this past few days, I, every day I've been posting songs from our, the immediate family, our group's new album. And I've been playing the bass parts, showing all the bass parts to the album. Uh, the thing that, that that's been fun out of this, especially though, uh, one of the things that really kicked it in the ass and got it going was uh, I did an interview with the great Rick Beato okay. and, uh, and he put it up on his channel and all of a sudden a whole bunch of people came, you know, gravitated over to it. And um, through that, uh, there, there's a guy named Aaron who, who's done a lot of stuff with Rick on his channel in terms of the technical stuff. And Aaron and I were talking and he said, you got to form a clubhouse. And ah. so I have a, I have a clubhouse uh, on, on my YouTube channel. Every video has links on it to my website where my book and all that crap is. And then there's uh, this thing, flat five, which is Aaron's thing. And I've got a bunch of t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and all that kind of stuff going on. But he said, you know, I've got to do a clubhouse. So we formed a clubhouse that people can sign up for. And, um, Twice a month, I do a live stream on it, which lasts about two and a half hours. And um, tomorrow is is uh, is a live stream. And so there's two levels of that. You can join the clubhouse and and be a part of the live stream. 
And then there's an elite level where you can sign up. And I do one on once a month, I do one on one FaceTime or Skypes with people. And I usually do a, it's like one day and I do about 22 people that day and spend about 12 hours sitting at the uh, camera, just wow. catching up with people. But the clubhouse is great. It's become during a really dark time where people have been, you know, separated and, and not being able to be together. Uh, a, a remarkable community has grown out of this uh, of friendship and all these people on it are so cool. And, <laughs> and the thing that's fun is it starts at, at when I do it, it starts at three o'clock and goes to about five or five thirty. Well, I log in to set this thing up at about two thirty, and about quarter to three, we send out the, uh, the link to it. And man, I just sit here and watch the chats because everybody's you know talking to each other they all know each other now they're asking how they're doing and and a lot of people have said you know I don't I'm not a bass player I don't know what I would talk about on your thing we hardly talk about bass at all most of the time we're talking about movies and food and what people are up to and then there's always like internal conversations going on while I'm answering somebody's questions I look at the chat and there's other people are talking about things and I jump in so it's kind of like, you know, being, it's kind of like being in the general store in Mayberry, <laughs> you know, it's uh, when we're playing checkers and, and stuff. Uh, cool. I, I love yeah. it. It's actually one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done is having this, this clubhouse and it's, and it's like 10 bucks a month oh, to cool. be a member of it. It's, it's not like you're, you're getting, you know, def- it's yeah, it's like, definitely worth it. It sounds yeah, you like, and you don't go to don't go to Starbucks one day, and you can right. join the clubhouse. Well, I don't know if I can do that, but I will join the clubhouse <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, you're building this community. That is awesome. Yeah, it's really great. And there's and there's now um, hundred sixty four thousand people on the channel. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, you know, I look at YouTube so- and stuff, and you, you sort of sit there and you go, okay, now, like, if I was lighting farts, I could be getting like. <laughs> 800,000 views on this or something, but this is, this is, you might want to consider doing that just for fun. I just, I just got to be careful with flames around me. Yeah. You have a lot of hair going on around certain areas. It looks like. There's certainly not going, I'm not going to tempt certain body orifices with flame (laughs) at this point. Um, Let me ask you, let me ask you, um, two questions came to mind. Um, one being, uh, what is the, Let's see. What's the song that you're most proud of that you've recorded? Oh, God, that's a tough one Um, because it's crossed over so many genres during the years. Um, You know, still one of one of the the important albums that I really enjoyed working on was was Spectrum with Billy Cobham. You know, we did that that whole album in two days. It's almost it's it's one or two takes of each song. Um, I, I, what our, year, what year did you do that? 73. Okay. okay. And it, and I'll tell you, it feels as fresh today as it did then. Um, it, it was a, it was an interesting situation because I was in a band which started as J- James Taylor's original, uh, band with the, called the section. And, uh. um, we, uh, it was Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, myself and Craig Durge on keyboards. And we were kind of a rock fusion group okay. at, that, at that period. We weren't a jazz fusion group, but we ended up on the road opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra 
for, for about six weeks. So we became friends with, you know, Jerry Goodman and Rick Laird and, you know, and Billy and, and, and John and everybody. Well, when that tour ended, uh, Billy got offered a record deal and he called me and he asked me if I'd come to New York and do the, his album with him. And I had been on the road with he and Jan Hammer. So I, I knew the guys. The thing that blew my mind is I flew to New York. We did the album at Electric Lady Studios in New York. And I walk in the studio and there's Tommy Bolin on guitar. Now, when I was in a band called Wolfgang at the end of the 60s, which is the band I was in when I met James Taylor, Tommy was in a band called Zephyr in Los Angeles. And we both had the same management. So we did a lot of gigs together. And so when I walked in, I went, Tommy, man, what, what are you doing here? And he went, hey, man, this is so cool. And because Tommy, to me, uh, he had ups and downs. He had a lot of, you know, issues you know, for, that he went through. But he was probably one of the greatest guitar players that to me has ever lived. I mean, when when Jeff Beck, he and Jeff Beck says this all the time. He says when he heard Spectrum, it changed his entire outlook on how to play guitar hmm. on that. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and it, it's an how amazing. How does it feel to be a part of that? I mean, just. Well, looking back, looking back throughout your whole career uh, up to now, and I mean, I, I don't know if you would have imagined that you would have been a part of that when you started, but looking back oh. on it now, I mean, that's got to. Well, all of it's all of it's weird to look at uh, for me, you know. Like when I started with James uh, Taylor. I was still in college studying science and, and art, and uh, and and we had met at a rehearsal with this band I was in, and when he got an opportunity to start his career, basically in, in L.A. at the Troubadour, they had Cooch on guitar and Russ on drums, and Carol King was the piano player in the band, and they needed a bass player, and he remembered me from a rehearsal. Big and, circle of friends. Yeah, well, it's it's just like a perfect storm that, that came down. So uh, so I ended up doing that, and I thought it was going to be one gig, and that one gig ended up turning into the rest of my life. Wow. Um, so you just never know what's going to happen. And um, it, it was like this process of, of like a like the perfect storm, where James was like the perfect face for this new direction in music of the singer-songwriter. It was a different singer-songwriter than like Phil Oates and Bob Dylan and that group that was just before we hit. Um, our involvement was completely different than like the Wrecking Crew uh, musicians because not only did we do the records, but we wrote songs for them. There was production involved, there was touring involved. So. So you're uh, you're a band member essentially. Yeah, you you basically you're a band member of every session you do. Wow. And that's how I've always approached it. When I when I get called to go to do a session, I think about it as though I'm a member of this band and and my commitment is that even though I might only see him for one day. Yeah. But it's I I don't I've never felt about this job as it's you're a hired help, you're a plumber just going to fix a sink. There's You know there's what? A, that's not very common that, because there are a lot of there are a lot of, I mean, I would say the majority of session players, at least, that look yeah. at it like that. Yeah, they do. And I mean, I still, I mean, I've been, I, I've been in in the studio now for a solid fifty two years working, wow. and 
I still get completely jacked when I get a phone call to go do a session and stuff. Like right now we're in the middle of an album with Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles. Oh, nice. And we're finishing that up this coming, uh, the 11th and 12th. But we, we were in three days a week ago and we cut 14 tracks with her. And it's Russ Kunkel playing drums and Cooch was there. And so, and Peter Asher was producing, who was, you know, James. I mean, it's... Yeah, all those, this, this all your friends. Unit. Yeah, we've, we've all been together for a long time. And there's a thing that happens when this unit gets together. And one of the things that's been interesting during this, this whole period is... Uh, for anybody who's never seen the Wrecking Crew movie, they should really see it because it's a movie that was done by Denny Tedesco, kind of honoring his father, Tommy Tedesco, who was the, probably the greatest studio guitar player that ever lived. And it's all it, it's a movie about the studio musicians of the late 50s through the 60s into the 70s. And the thing that's been really exciting is Denny is doing a documentary movie about our band. Uh, and they're in uh, editing mode right now for it. So we're about a month away from seeing the first rough cut of this movie. Congrats and, uh, on that. Yeah, so it's it, it's all a trip. But I, you know, I talked to Denny about it, and because uh, a lot of people heard when Denny was doing it, they say, "Oh, it'd be like the Wrecking Crew movie." And he went, "Really, the Wrecking Crew was around for about ten years, really working. I mean, they did everybody from the Beach Boys to Frank Sinatra to the Tijuana Brass to the Association. They did everything." Uh -huh. uh, I mean, Carol Kay was the bass player in the Wrecking Crew, or and Bobby West did did some, and Joe Osborne, you know, and Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer, and all these these amazing players. But he said they worked for about you know ten solid years. They never went on the road. They never left the studio. They never did any of that. And and, and he said the spin for me is, you guys have been doing it for fifty years, and you've done all the other aspects of these artists, from writing, producing, touring and stuff not all of them but getting back to, to uh, i'm long-winded so you'll do some editing no but no, no no i love this man this is great and i think this is great for everybody listening as well well th the thing that was um that has been interesting about all this is and the thing i think that really has made me feel so much pleasure from this this uh job that i've got is the fact that um, first off, I was fortunate that I started as a classical pianist when I was five years old. So wow. I, I, I came to bass when I was 12. I went into junior high school and they had lots of piano players but needed an upright player. And the music teacher pulled one out, showed me how to hold it. I plucked one note, felt that vibration and said, sold. Wow. Um, but but during, during the course of when I started working with James, uh, unlike so many of the other guys of that period, I came into it as a really strong reader because I had had okay. years of classical training. So once our names started getting out there, and one of the, the greatest things in my career was that when we did James's first records, um, Peter Asher produced them, and Peter insisted that our names all appear on the album jackets. Rather than the Wrecking Crew never got you know, there was liner right, notes and right, stories, right. but they didn't get credit. So people never knew that they were listening to the same musicians on all these different records. So when people were listening to James and, and maybe somebody was a upcoming uh, singer songwriter wanting to do that, they could look at James's record and they go, well, hell, if these guys are good enough for James, well, let's call them. And so all of a sudden I was getting all these calls to work with singer songwriters. And that's how I hooked up with Jackson Brown and, all these different people of that period. And once our names got around, 
Then I started getting calls for other kinds of sessions, you know, doing movies, television, um, you know, people, you know, like Johnny Mathis and, um, you know, and, and Barbara Streisand and all these people that were primarily reading dates. So I suddenly okay. was transitioning um, over to lots of different genres and, and working with different people. And during the course of this, I've ended up working on probably somewhere in the vicinity of about 25,000 songs wow. during this whole period. That's insane. That is insane. So, so when you go back to try to pick songs, you know, it's like I can go, you know, Dr. My Eyes is still one of my favorite tracks with Jackson Brown and uh, all the stuff with James was great and songs with Linda Ronstadt and uh, all these people. But I, you know, I played on Evergreen with Barbara Streisand or the theme to Mahogany with, uh, uh, Oh God, I'm, I'm blanking here. Diana Ross. Um, you know, it, it's, it, I think it's the variety of things that's really kept me feeling fresh in, in what I do. And then I get, I get called for funk dates and R and B dates. And I spent years in Nashville doing country dates with, we talked about that a bit. I did all of uh, Jimmy Bowen's work when he moved down to Nashville. Cause I used to work with Jimmy when he lived in Los Angeles and when he moved down and took over Capitol, um, he called me and he said, you want to come down here and work? And I said, hey, I'd love to. And that's how I got to know all the, you know, Eddie Bayers and, and Reggie Young and Billy Walker Jr. And all the, the great players and became friends with, with people like Michael Rhodes and Michael Brignadello and all the, you know, great bass players in Nashville. So, um, so. You're, you're just saying yes. And through saying yes and your obvious love for what you're doing and bringing that yeah. vibe and energy it things yeah. just have just come to you. Uh, you can clearly uh, pick and choose what you want to work on. Um, what do you say no to? Um, I almost have never said no. Okay. Um, I, I I might I, I I might say no to something that I'm getting a gut feeling or people have warned me about somebody who's like kind of a rip off person and. You know, and, and you, you just kind of think, man, I, I, this could be more trouble than it's worth. Um, the only time I would really say no, though, is if I've done something for somebody and it was a drag and they called me back to do another one. I might say no at that point. Okay. But I, I always encourage players um, to take everything. Uh, it, it's one of those things you never know what sits around the corner. So, you know, you might get called for something and... Um, you kind of go, I, I, maybe it might be okay, but you meet somebody on that date that that you suddenly go, oh man, we've got to work together more, and other things happen. You you just don't know. So if it, it's, I remember I was talking to Hal Blaine once about this, and when he was starting in the studio scene back in like the fifties, or he, he said he got called for a for a, uh, a session, and they said, yeah, you do play percussion, don't you? And he said, well, no, I'm, I'm great. I'm, I'm really good. He had never played percussion in his life. <laughs> Went out and bought a whole bunch of percussion stuff and sat and kind of figured figured out what's needed and showed up and they were thrilled with it. But if he would have said no, they would have hired somebody else right. and that account wouldn't have happened. So I encourage people all the time, just say, say yes and show up. I mean, if, if it's something... That, you know, if they give you, you know, notice ahead of time what it is and you think it's really not something you can pull off and do, uh, then then you say no with an explanation. But I remember I have a friend in Nashville who called me to, to work on a song on an album he was working on and he played me the demo of it. And I looked at him and 
I had never met Victor Wooten at that point, but Vic had done the demo. Oh wow! And, and I looked at <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, "This track is done. There's no way I'm going to ever do this." I mean, to me, I look at Vic and to me, he's like evidence that aliens have fathered children on this planet. You know, <laughs> but there's there's few Victor Wootens in this world, both as a musician and as a as human, a human being. Human being, absolutely. He's one of the best people in the world. Absolutely. And, uh, so uh, it, it's it's one of these things, though. I, I kind of like I love challenges. So you know, when people call me for things, it's it's fun to show up and go what, for it. What challenge? What has challenged you the most so far in in, in your studio career? Um, I I can cite two two sessions that were really two of the hardest dates I've ever done. Throw them uh, at me. One of them is a movie called Hollywood Homicide that was a Harrison Ford. Movie. I saw that. I saw that. Well, there's a huge chase scene in it. And the guy who wrote the music for it, it was all programmed synth, left hand. But it it started hard and then got much harder as it went on. It was like nine pages of black on it. And on this date, uh, there was uh, there's a great bass player in Los Angeles named Kenny Wilde. And Ken was playing upright on the date and I was electric. And, And this chase scene was all electric bass. And as soon as I opened this thing up, man, my heart sank. It was so insanely hard. And everybody at, at that point in the session broke to go to lunch. And I told them, I said, I'm staying, I'm working on this. And as they were leaving, Kenny leaned over and, on my shoulder and he went, better you than me. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked, I worked my nuts off during that lunch break to figure this out. And, and we finally, you know, we, they came back from lunch and we did it and, and I got it. And then I saw the movie and it's all squealing tires and gunshots and dialogue. I mean, I was sweating bullets over this. And at the end of the day, I had the uh, composer sign the, the score for me. And, oh, wow. and all he wrote was, on, hey, Lee, I'm so sorry. And then signed his name. <laughs> so that was that was one of the dates. And the other one was uh, Linda Ronstadt. It, to me, it's one of the greatest artists I've ever known. I mean, and and her movements from rock through doing her Great American Songbook or her um, Broadway work, her her homage to her father with all their the Mexican music she grew up with and all that. She does everything unbelievable. Well, at one point, she was doing um, a Pirates of Penzance on Broadway. Oh wow! So. Th- they were going to make, then it was going to be turned into a movie. When they recorded the pit orchestra for this, um, I think by the time they did it, they had gotten pretty lazy and things that, you know, you would have, you know, been fine in a theater. Suddenly, if you're thinking about as a movie, this stuff is, is really not going to work. So what they decided to do was go in and replace everything on, on, on the, uh, which became the temp track for the movie they filmed. And then we had to do it. Well, the first person that they brought in was me to replace the bass on this thing. Well, I'm sitting there. There's no click track, no video of a conductor, anything. The conductor's there in the studio with us and he's going, I don't know. I don't know what, how it was different every night kind of thing. And Gilbert and Sullivan is ferocious tempos all over the place, time signatures. I had at, at certain points, I had Linda's vocal turned up so loud so I could hear her take a preparatory breath 
before. Wow. And at one point we had been working on, I think like eight bars that were just hellacious. And I finally just sat there and punched the music stand and music went flying all over and I dented the music stand. <laughs> and and the engineer, it was Peter Asher producing and Val Gray engineering and, and the conductor. And they all jumped out. And I said, look, I just had to get this out of my system. Uh, it, it was really hard. Had they videotaped the conductor for that performance, then I could have just watched him on screen and seen, you know, but things, you know, are, are just, it's like, you know, like moving tempos like that. Yeah. For a film, it has to be accurate because it's going to be right in your face. So that was really one of the hardest dates I ever did. Did you did you complete it? Was it? Oh yeah. No. The the thing is, the the crazy thing about this business is there's no plan B. You 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 walk in that studio that day and you leave with product. It's not like they're going to go. Oh, you know, I. I you know, it's like so many other businesses where I just don't feel it today. And they go, well, cool, let's just go grab a pizza and we'll come back tomorrow. Yeah. You know, you walk in that studio with a blank canvas and they expect a, maybe not a masterpiece, but they expect, you know, a completed work by the end of the day. That's so, why they're calling so you, you, right? Yeah. So you, your ass is really on the line to, uh, to, to, uh, to perform. That sounds and, uh, completely deranged and insane. I don't, I don't know how you did it. Well, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredibly rewarding and difficult gig to do it, you know, cause everybody else kind of says, Oh man, you got to play in all these records. It's so cool. But they had people that don't understand the process that goes into it. Don't really realize the, the stress and the pressure you can be under, especially, you know, there were times where I was, you know, could get jealous where I, I look at somebody like flea, and all he's really had to know is chili peppers. Right. You know, I mean, he can go off and do whatever he wants to do. And he's a really fine musician. So, but you think of these guys that are in bands, you know, I think of Timothy Schmidt being in the Eagles and stuff. And these guys have had massive financial successful careers and all that. And I look at it from my standpoint and every single day I have to join a new band and, and get into their headspace and do music that I've, that I've never heard before. And, and, and when they're coming in with just a piano or a guitar and, and, and you're, you're finding all the parts. And beyond that, if you really are engaged, then you're also throwing out suggestions for production, for arrangement ideas. Uh, you get in much deeper. So it's a, it's a, I, I thrive on this gig, but it, it is a hard gig. Some sessions are really easy and other sessions are really really hard and yeah. um and you really you you have to leave with a, with a product at the end of the day so especially if you care about what it is that you're doing i think that exactly you know that is uh a little bit transparent sometimes when you don't care people can feel it or see it or the outcome is not and then really, you don't get called you back. Go, exactly i was gonna say so on your youtube channel you uh yeah you're going through all these uh, songs that you played on through the years and, and you're playing along to it. Uh, do you think that your approach has changed at all? I mean, are you hearing things any different now? Yeah, Say, you know, you, you play a line that you played 25 years ago and you come back to it. Are you feeling it a little bit different? Well, not only are you feeling it different from 25 years ago, if you had recorded that song the next day again, it would be different. 
Oh, yeah. Because okay. To me, it's all really, I always tell everybody, everything I do is etched in mud. <laughs> okay. It's all really, it's always in, it's a process that's always ongoing. And one of the things I So came, it evolves a bit. Yeah. And one of the things I came to grips with on this channel when I realized this was going to be a long-term thing and not just, you know, doing, putting up a, a dozen videos and then be done with it. Right. When I started looking at, at other songs from, from my career, I got to the, I got to the point where I thought I'm not going to play every day. I'm going to present the song and talk about what went on. And then I'm going to be an audience with the people because things like, um, Gene Clark, who was one of the singers in The Birds originally, he did a, an, a, a seminal album called No Other, which is really one of the great cult albums of all time. And like on the track No Other, I think I have six basses on it. Oh, I'm doing oh, wow. all kinds of stuff on it. And uh, it became the dominant instrument on it. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to sit here and play along with this and have it be that moment in time. Uh, when you're digging back. So it, it, to sit and play your smiling face with James Taylor, things like that, I'm happy to play along with those. And and one thing I did not commit to, I'm, I'm committing to the basic idea of the part in the field, but I'm not sitting here cutting karaoke I got you. records or, you know, uh, yeah. stuff to be heard in an elevator. So sometimes I'm playing these and they're not exactly like the original was. It's the intent is there, but it's more for... Just people to you know get the vibe yeah. of it. Have you noticed a difference though in your playing? Has it has it changed or evolved? I think I think that there's an element of, of my playing that probably from the beginning up to this point. First off, every everything everything I do is predicated on the song we're doing at that moment. Right. Okay. So if, I, if I'm suddenly getting called to do a fusion album then I'm going to be stepping up and, and digging in deep into that. If I'm being called to do Reba McIntyre and we're doing a ballad, I'm into that. But uh, as a general thing from, from where I started to where I am now, I would say I've probably refined my parts and, and, and simplified them when necessary just to find the absolute essence of what that song needs and don't throw anything else in there that's superfluous but throw in just enough to, to leave your signature. Got you. That's important. Yeah. And and finding I, your voice. Yeah, because I have so many people that'll come up to me and they'll go, man, I was listening to this record the other day and I, I swear to God that's you on it. And they tell me what it was. And I go, yeah. Yeah, there it is. Said, I knew it was you, even though there, <laughs> it's not like a solo record and you're not listening right. to right. You know, somebody. So it's... Uh, well, that's, it, there's something to be said for that. Um, yeah. You know, you, yeah. you've you've created your voice and yeah. people recognize that let's talk about gear a little bit uh, how do you decide which uh bases to take to sessions and stuff um i i usually take um on an average I'll, i've got three bases i'll okay. take with me and unless i think there's a unless we talk in advance like um like if they think if you could bring a fretless with you just to just to have it there. But my my primary base that's been my primary base since we built it in 73, I, I call Frankenstein. Um, and it was all pieces that we we made and, and assembled. So it was never a real base that was modified or anything. It's a it's a a, a, a 62 P, P base neck that we 
we reshaped into a 62 jazz bass neck. Okay. Um, the body was a, was a blank, it was a, a, a precision Charvel body. Charvel was one of the companies that built all kinds of replacement parts. And I went to their factory and went through a stack of alder bodies uh, that were, that the run they had was for precision bases and hung them all from a, each one from a piece of wire and just tapped them. And oh, I found wow. one that resonated perfectly. So we got that. Um, I, I ended up building this base um, with John Carruthers, who's a great base builder. And uh, back in the in the seventies, especially uh, Westwood Music uh, out here in LA was like the watering hole for all the musicians. Uh, so you'd go there and, and, and hang out. And you'd, Jackson would be there, Ry Cooter, any of these guys would be, you know, just jamming and hanging out there. Fred Wallachy had created an incredible environment there for musicians. And, jo and John Carruthers ran the repair department. So we built this space uh, there. And so it was this blank older body, but I've, I've always preferred jazz bass over precision bass. So we ended up putting two sets of P-Bass pickups where jazz pickups would have gone on it. And they were EMGs that Rob Turner had just started EMG. And these were his first generation pickups, which are still unbelievable. Uh, active and, or passive? Active. Active, and, okay. But they're, but they're not active like most active now are. They were like, they're active like if you had passive on steroids. Okay. Okay. Now, so it doesn't have that like super hype thing that that gotcha. a lot of active stuff has now. And one of the things we did different on it, I, I told him, I talked to John about it. I said, I think Leo Fender got it wrong on on the P base when he put the um, the, the the half of the pickup that's under the G and the D string closer to the bridge and the A and the E closer to the neck. I said, why not reverse that? Because by the nature of the tonality and and the strings if you put the A and the E closer to the bridge, they're going to have a little more clarity than the G and the D, which will even it out. So we did that with two sets of pickups. So we've got those on it. It's got a badass uh, two bridge on it. It's got one of the first hip shot detuners. And the real game changer for me was when we, ch when we changed the profile of the neck, we had to pop the frets. So when we refretted it, I had them refret it with mandolin frets. So oh, all wow. my bases, all my bases have Mando wire well, on them. If you okay, so what's the purpose of that? Just um, it just seemed like, um, I mean, it was a total experiment, but it was one of these things where I thought, uh, I first off, coming from upright, my action is real high okay. on my bases. So when I'm playing with that, I can like lighten my touch up on it, and you can almost sound fretless when you want with it because you're not dealing with a big chunk of metal on that neck. You're dealing with a really fine piece of wire. Yet, if I'm playing chords and tenths and things like that, you have all the accuracy uh, okay. of, of that. So okay. it was a, one of these things where where Carruthers said, "Man, I wouldn't do this. He's this 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 shade ain't gonna last." Um, <laughs> you know, because I use I always use round wounds. I've got a couple of bases with some flats on them, but for the most part, I really love rounds. And um, he said, "This will just grind him away." Well. That bass is on probably 80% of everything I've recorded since then, and I'm on my third refret. Oh wow! So, so okay. they didn't they didn't wear out. Yeah. And um, so so I would take that with me. Um, one of the things I've done over the years, a, a huge chunk of my work is replacing synth bass, 
And everybody who programs SynthBase has a left arm about 18 inches longer than their right arm so they can reach as low as they can possibly get. <laughs> and, and I kept searching for a five string that really bred in that register and didn't find anything that was really satisfying. You, you, you pluck along and the G and the D and the A and E all sound nice. And then you hit that B and it's just, it's just right. kind of. Whoa. Not as defined as. Yeah. And I was at a NAM show probably about 18 years ago, at least, I guess now. Um, yeah, probably about 18 years ago. And this guy came up to me and asked me if I would try one of his basses. And it was Sheldon Dingwall. Oh, okay. And I went back to Sheldon's booth with him, looked at the fan fretting, said, explain this to me. And he talked about Ralph Novak's concept for fan fretting and tempering the bass really because your B string is two inches longer than your G string and it all splays out. As soon as I played that B string, I said, I love you. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and that, and to me, and I even got a hip shot on my B string um, to oh, drop wow. it to an A and okay. it reads absolutely clear note wise. And there's a lot of great basses on the market at this point, but um, I absolutely love Dingwall and I'm, and so I've got a signature model that I've oh. done with, with, with him. We just did a few mods Recently? on that. Yeah, it's been a few years and, and, and we keep playing around with it because he's always hungry to keep advancing things along. Uh, it, it, for the same reason, like I've got a signature base that I, I've never taken a penny for. Um, I said, look at whatever you sell, man, just reinvest it into the shop. It's a you know, boutique shop and all that. I just want to see the best instrument possible. And, and so it's been a great relationship with him. That's awesome. And, uh, and um, when, when I, I'll, I'll finish the gear and then I'll tell you what I do with my Dingwall. Okay. Then the other bass that I've got is one of the things that was always fun to go to was Bass Player Live. Yes. Uh, when, you know, Bass Player Magazine would put this on. And one of the companies that always had kind of a big footprint at any of these things was Warwick. Right. And when it was uh, here at, at the... Um, where did they have it at? Um, yeah, somewhere in Hollywood. I can't remember. SIR? Now. Was that the... Uh, it was probably SIR. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got there early and I, and I went in and I saw Warwick's booth. And I really wasn't that familiar with their stuff. I knew them by name and all that. But I walked in and there was a, a, a Starbase 2, a fretless Starbase 2 sitting there. So I started playing it. And nobody... I, I hate... I, I'll only do this shit when I'm by myself. You know, I don't, I hate when people start gathering, then it becomes a whole other thing. So there was nobody around and I got real into it and really fell in love with this space. I thought this is really good, something to think about. Well, uh, after that, um, I, I'm really good friends with Steve Bailey and, uh, and we were on the road with Lyle Lovett and we were going to be playing North Carolina at that point. Um, Steve was at his home in North Carolina. So I invited him to the show. Well, he was he had been a, a Warwick and Dorsey for many years and had a really great relationship with Hans Peter. So apparently he contacted Hans and because uh, I had told him how much I dug that bass and he showed up at the gig with that bass. Oh, and wow. said, Hans wants you to have this bass. Very and cool. So, and I had never met Hans or anything. So I, I wrote to him. I said, man, this is so generous of you. I mean, I can't believe it. And thank you so much. And all that. Well, after that was the was a NAM show, so I went to the NAM show and got to meet Hans and and the whole team of of Warwick people there, and we hit it off really well. And so I've been using their the, the Star Bass. I never played any of their other basses, Thumb Bass or 
any of these because I've, I've, I'm not one of these guys that you're going to see in the magazines hustling all the gear out there. I'm very specific about my Dingwall, my Frankenstein base, and we ended up doing a signature model for Warwick for a, um, and, and I wanted to change the star base in terms of body shape and, and putting like an angle on the top. So when your arm's resting on it, it's not on a hard edge. It's a little bit of a slant. Mm-hmm. We couldn't do that with a hollow body like the star base is. So we ended up building a chambered body base. Um, so we got the shape exactly where we wanted it, carved everything out of it that could be carved out and then laid on like, you know, the, the veneer on top of that and stuff. And, and those are really my three go-to bases for the most part. And, um, but when I would be on tour, like with Phil Collins, I, uh, the only thing I took out was my ding wall. I, I have two matching ones and one is in case something happens to the other, Back break up, a swing yeah. or yeah. anything. Okay. Um, but I, I, I'm one of these people, I, if I'm doing a show and, and in the entire show, I need one, like an E flat say, mm-hmm. um, I'll play five for the whole show because I want to give the front of house guy a specific sound that he can build the set around. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't use any pedals. I mean, oh, everything, not, at all, everything huh? is okay. not, not live. I, to me, every, everything slightly diminishes your tone. Even if it says true bypass and all that stuff, there's always that nuance. I don't go wireless. I always, I always am hardwired on everything. Cause it just, when we AB'd, the difference on those it's for me in my ear it's just what i want to hear um okay. never used in-ears um still, I no? st- still like with phil collins lyle lovett toto any of those people i work with always have wedges for okay. it I, and my amps right behind me and the wedge right there and yeah, man it a, is as a as a bass player i mean i use in-ears now because um they want to have a somewhat of a clean stage i guess and yeah. stage volume down for the vocalist but yeah i do love wedges and i do love having uh an earthquake behind me yeah <laughs> i mean the only the only time i ever really have to wear in ears is if i'm doing like the grammys or the latin grammys okay. or, or a show where they're going to be shooting out cues right to okay. us, and that can't come through a wedge or the audience right, see. right. Yeah. Um, but, but other than that and I, it's like when i'd be out with phil like Daryl Sturmer would come wandering over and stand next to me and he'd go, fuck, this sounds so good here. Cause everybody else on stage is in ears. Yeah. Okay. Be the only guy. But mm-hmm. so I just, I just bring one bass, you know, to nice. do it and have that one consistent sound throughout the set. Simple um, and it works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I, I really love simplicity. I, it was, it was a difficult thing with, um, uh, when I went on the road with Phil in 2004 and we did the first final farewell tour, mm-hmm. um, they brought they brought in a, a bass tech for me, a guy named Steve Winstead. His nickname was Chinner. And I think he had just come off of a tour where the bass player had like 10 basses and wanted new strings every night and on everything. And he was like, man, chomping at the bit to work. He was yeah. so ready. And he came to me and he said, so, man, what do you need? What do you need? And I went, uh, nothing. I've always done my own gear. I don't. I don't know oh. what to tell you. I was always. I always change my own strings, check the batteries, everything, because yeah. I figure it's my ass on stage. If something goes wrong, I'm the guy that looks like he's got egg on his face. Right. So, right. Um, okay. So we had kind of a running joke. I said, you know, just have the gear on stage, make make sure it's plugged in and works, and uh, 
check in and tune up just before I go out and stuff. So he ended up doing like a lot of stuff like with percussion and background singers and all this. And we'd always like joke with each other, you know, just what do you need? And I'd go, nothing kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, and really because of that relationship is how I ended up doing the book I did during the pandemic. Oh, I've cool. A book and it all started with Chinner. Okay. Uh, and we can get into that. Yeah, let's talk about the book in a second. Oh. I do want to ask you uh, about strings. Please, please. I'll just keep fucking talking. Strings. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah, what strings. kind of strings do you use? Um, for years, I've been using GHS. Okay. Um, and, and the set that I really kind of, I know they make a lot of great strings, but the set that I really kind of have settled on with most of my basses um, is their um, uh, Super Steel Medium Lights. Okay. which is uh, on the on the Frankenstein base it's a 40 a 58 and 80 and a 102 are the gauges on that and i love a 40 i hate a 45 as a g string because i do like to be expressive and wiggle with it ah. and just a little bit stiffer string kind of takes that away a bit um and that, do you, that's do you have you a could, do you have a um... A lighter touch on the majority of your playing, or you? I play real hard. Do you? I have high action, okay. and I play hard because right. because okay. I'm still coming from upright. Right. Where you really dug in. Makes um, sense. But but to me, it, it's like all my all you know, like so many guys, all my dynamics are there. Right. It's not like I'm sitting with volume pedals and things like that. I, yeah. I just uh, it was really funny. I I they were doing a um a tribute album to John Lord when he passed away from, uh, from deep purple. Uh -huh. And, um, uh, we were, I was in, um, Germany at, at Warwick doing one of their base camps there. And I was there Steve, when you were there actually. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah. Steve Bailey, so Steve Bailey, um, always, he's always ready to record. He's got stuff going on. So, um, I said, they sent me this song. Could, could we just go ahead and, and just jump in a room and record it? So we did the thing and it was a lot of eighth note stuff and all that. And when it was all through, he just kind of looked at me and he said, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. He was watching, you know, the, the graph basically. And he said, it didn't move. He wow. said the consistency of every note was identical through this entire song. And in, in a way that's kind of how I uh, like approached um, Stratus on, okay. on, on Spectrum is that that baseline does not move one iota. And I, I, I'm one of the so things it sounds I like you kind of know what you're doing. <laughs> well, well, good or bad, I'm, I'm committed. Um, Got you. So, um, so, it, but I've, I like those, but I, I've tried a couple of other, you know, some nylon wrap strings. I've got a, um, an old Washburn AB45 acoustic five string of theirs. And uh, I hated that bass. I thought it was horrible. But one day I pulled the, the frets out and filled it in and it became magic you did it and, yourself uh yeah okay. and um the uh and i put some of the black nylon flat wounds on that and it's got a really luscious sound now it's very specific so it's got to be like the right project for that and and it's like i did baby bb king's 80th birthday album and i ended up using my hoffner on that oh. and just stuffed it full of foam rubber and stuff to get it like a really crappy old upright sound on it and and bb loved it and it was perfect for the music we were doing so there's a few bases that are specific to certain projects um but for the most part um i i sit and i listen to a song and i just kind of decide amongst the couple of bases i've got which would be the best for it and i've been using uh, like on the susanna hoff's record i've been using my dingwall a lot because there's 
a bunch of stuff that's really moody stuff where I've got like, like I'm doing octaves playing a low C and a C on the A string and moving around in, in those positions okay. and using the only thing I take to a studio with me um, effects wise is I have an Aguilar and a Boss OC2 um, octave dividers. The Boss I really love. The Aguilar will go a little bit lower before it before it gets gl up. glitchy. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I have is is an ancient uh, a TC chorus flanger, and I love when it's in the middle position uh, where it's called pitch shift. Okay. And uh, so with a with a light touch and that thing, you can really allude to some interesting fretlessy vibe on, on like the Frankenstein bass. Wow. So, but I, I really, I try to keep things really simple. Um, Do you ever use any um, uh, like overdrive or fuzz or distortion or anything like that? No? I, if there's a very specific song, like when I did um, Steve Lukather's um, uh, Ever Ch I think it's Ever Changing Times is one of his solo albums. Um, it was a great record. I mean, I love Luke. I've worked with Luke since He's he was amazing. 19 years old. And on the, one of the tracks was uh, Jammin' with Jesus, it was called. And it was um, uh, Abe Laboreal Jr. on drums and myself and Luke and Jeff Babco on keys. And we wanted this thing to be nasty. So we, we got our hands on a, on a I think it it might have been a, a DI that, that had an overdrive in it. I can't remember. Um, but we drove it to the point of absolute distortion. The bass is just, and it's the perfect song, you know, awesome. sound for the, for this track. So, I mean, I'll grab stuff if I think, you know, there's any chance. I, I mean, if I'm sitting at home playing, I'll, I'll sit here and do whole Hendrix things. I'll plug all kinds of shit and have, you know, like a, like a whammy pedal. And I mean, I've got tons of pedals here. But when I go to work, I always know that the reason they've called me is really to give them a solid bass part. And um, and when I when I worked with Billy Thorpe, uh, when we did the Children of the Sun album, which was like this mega insane album, uh, I put together probably one of the biggest rigs anybody ever put together uh, on a tour. I, I We put together a Klipsch speaker system that the bass bins took four guys to lift each bass bin, these giant W folded cabinets. Then I had two mid-range cabinets, two uh, high-end cabinets. Each bass bin was driven by a thousand-watt mono Altec amp. The rest oh. of it, the, the rest of it, I had six Yamaha P2200s driving the whole thing, using an SVT head as a preamp. Um, Bob Easton built. I had the first 360 system bass synth, um, and we did all this stuff. And I could, I could take my. Um, if I was playing like my low E string, I had a transposition pedal where I could drop it three octaves. And we got down to about eight hertz with this oh, wow. thing at about 120 dB. Crazy. Um, we all got sick. We were throwing up and shit. It was, <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, oh, my. It's funny. You know, uh, it's very cool. I love uh, Steve Lukather and his son, Trevor. I actually just oh, played yeah, on Trev's, um, Trev's record. And Abe Jr. played drums on it too, so yeah. I did a session for a few. So it was really cool. Very kind people. Very. Oh, kind they're people. great. They're great. You know, and and it was such a joy when I had. I mean, it was a real double-edged sword when I worked with Toto, because um, I'd known the guys since they formed the band. I mean, we've been in the studio and friends, you know. And I love them. I love the music. So when they called me and asked me if I could go out with them. I loved that I was going out, but I hated why I was going out. And it was because Mike Picaro was so ill and oh. couldn't, couldn't play anymore. And yeah. I kept the whole tour. I kept wishing, 
Mike, just call me and tell me to go home. You're coming back kind of situation. And I understand, uh, I understand and, that. So that was, that was really tough. Cause like Jeff Picaro was one of my closest friends, you know, and when I've seen what the families amazing, had to deal with, it's uh, amazing drummer, pretty rough. Yeah. Um, who are some of your favorite new bassists on the scene? Oh God, you know, you hear all this. Well, I guess Ellen, <laughs> that that little eight-year-old girl. Oh, yes, who's like, yes. Like just, you know, I mean, what a cool household. She must be growing up with her dad, you know, working with her on all these songs and seeing this little girl nailing all these songs. But like um, Henrik from Dirty Loops is a friend. And, you know, I think he's just like a ridiculous bass player. Absolutely. I see, I see a lot of guys... Um, who are showing a massive amount of facility, but they're not showing me any music. Right. And that's a difficult, that's for me, it's difficult. I, I've kind of written a few times on some of the bass sites and like the Berkeley site. I go, man, you guys are blowing my mind in terms of chops. Yeah. You see guys like doing Bach double hand tapping and all this stuff. Yeah. But I say, I never see anybody post a, a, a video about, how to create a bass part for a song that has changes in it. And, you know, I mean, so, I'm, so I'm, let's, let's talk about that because you're pretty much the master. What goes into creating a great bass part? Well, I think first off a great song, you know, if you got something you can really dig into that, that, that touches you, that has, it doesn't have to be melancholy or anything just something that just feels like it's a beautifully crafted piece of material that the writer thought about and get, get, being given the opportunity just to listen to a song and, and think about what you can contribute to it. Uh, it. It's not about showing off your prowess as a player or anything like that. I mean, even on our immediate family album, one of the songs on there, I don't, I think for me, everything's whole notes on it. They're okay. just big notes supporting what's going on. So I always look at, at the bass part as just trying to put together the best foundation you can possibly put together to, uh, to build the song on. A, 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 a quick little story. Um, years ago, I was talking to Hal Blaine on a session and he was talking about he had gone down to San Diego to do a gig and Hal's one of the greatest drummers that ever lived. And, uh, he, so that he went down and did this gig and there was a young bass player on the gig who whipped it out. He said, this guy was like burning all night, just pulling out everything he could imagine. And at the end of the evening, he was all puffed up and he came over to Hal and he said, so man, what do you think? Oh, wow. And Hal looked at him and he said, yeah, I think we need a bass player. <laughs> you know, and- uh, Oh, he, I bet he just you fell have to, to the floor. His it. ego yeah, fell I mean, to the floor. Yeah, I mean, if you're one of those guys that's really, it's all about chops and stuff, and you're doing your own project, mm -hmm. that's great. If yeah. you're writing for what you do. But I've heard a lot of things where I'm just listening to things, and I'm going, you didn't really listen to this song, or you're like stepping all over the singer. You're like not honoring. See, I've always considered myself an accompanist. Okay. Kind of no matter what situation I'm in, I, I do love the position of an accompanist. And so I, I, I try to as quickly as I can suss out what everybody else is playing. I want to know the guitar parts. I want to know the keyboard parts. I just did an album with a girl named uh, Laurie Basilio, who's like one of the, the monster guitarists out of Brazil. She's like amazing. She's a beautiful girl, sits down to play guitar and you're going, holy crap. Wow. And it was me and Vinnie Caliuto worked on her thing. 
But I look at it as going, I've got all these parts in here, but I'm accompanying her. So you don't step on her. You, you make sure you're in a supportive role. Right. And there's a lot of guys that don't understand that seat. You know, when they get in that studio, they're, they're pushing, they've got, they're showing off everything they got. And, uh, and, 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 and I admire, you know, what they've got and stuff. But to me, I, I came up, you know, through the Carol Kay and Joe Osborne and Duck Dunn and Babbitt and Jamerson school of all those people. And it was really about songs and coming up with these parts that really wove that area between the, the rhythmic end of it with drums into the melodic end of it with the other instruments. And right. I've just loved that, that position because you can, you can change the direction of a song with one inversion. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I find really exciting. You can watch the other guys all kind of go, what was, what was that? <laughs> it takes, yeah. uh, it takes um, maturity and wisdom. I mean, yeah, I guess. And balls and balls. And and balls, yes. <laughs> um, um, you know, yeah, you can, but should you? You know, you have to think about that. I think yeah. a lot of the times, and and it's it's like we've said earlier. Everything's always transitory, and and and, and, and it can go any way. I mean, for me, it's like I really hate when I'm working on a song for somebody, and there's and I haven't heard the vocal. Because I really have no idea emotionally what the song is about. I don't want to do a fun bass part and find out the song was about death and suicide. Right. You know, so that you really a great point. That's a great point. And, yeah, so I, and now that you mentioned that, I do love to play off the vocal when I'm recording bass. Yeah, both both melodically and, and, and lyrically, because yeah. I really want to know, like people are, have been, another thing that's happened during the course of the pandemic is I had never recorded at home before. I was either in studios or I had all these friends with great home studios. So I would just go to their house. It was an excuse to go eat pizza. And if we would do a, a track, well, once we went into lockdown, I couldn't do that anymore. And um, I ended up getting an SSL 2 Plus interface and have been doing stuff for Ian Pace and Julian Lennon. All these people have been sending me tracks. But when I get a track that doesn't have a vocal on it, I really don't know what the hell the song's about. I'm just playing a chart. And yeah. in, in, in the past, when this has happened, sometimes I'll hear a song after my part is done and they've finished the track. And I go, if I would have had any idea that that's what you were going to put on this, that is not what I would have played. Oh, OK. But, but I was there at a skeletal level. Right. And so I was having to guess what they were going to do later. So okay. I, it is that's what I really lament about the old session days, which there's more and more of it uh, recently. But, you know, being in a room with, you know, four to six people and an artist singing, then all of a sudden, you know exactly what, what's going on. And, and most of it's there. Then they can do a sweetening date, bring in background singers, horns, strings, whatever they're going to do later. But the real bones of the song are in place. But if it's right. just you guessing what somebody wants and they can't even really express it to you uh, online or anything, it's a, it's a game of guesswork. So. Totally get that. Totally get Man, you are just full of so much uh, wisdom, wise words. It's man. called bullshit. It's called <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, a few more little things before we go. Sure. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. Okay, so we were on this tour and Chinner, my, my bass tech was there. And there was there was talk on that tour that Phil was going to retire at the end of the tour. They had after that tour, I think two years later, they had a Genesis tour 
they had to do. And then he was going to call it after that, okay. which was what shocked us a few years ago when he called and said, we're going to go out again kind of thing. And now Genesis is just getting ready to start another tour. Um, but so uh, uh, we had probably about 110 or so people on the road on that. You know, those are huge tours with massive crews and, you know, buses and trucks and planes and all this crap going on. And I thought I may never, may never see a lot of these people again because they're from all over the world and it and it's the Phil tour that brought us all together. So I thought I'm just going to take a picture of everybody and make a little folder for my computer, and then I can, you know, down the line I can look at it and go, "What was this? Who are these people?" You know, kind of thing. Once you've forgotten everything in your life. Um, so as luck would have it, um, Chinner was sitting working on his laptop, and I went over and I said, "Hey, man, give me a smile." And he just was didn't break stride. He just went and gave me the finger. <laughs> and I the finger. The That's yeah, what I wanted to talk about was the finger. Yeah. So I, I look at the picture and I went, hmm, I kind of like this. So I went and got Phil, his manager, all the band, all the crew, truck drivers, bus drivers, caterers. I ended up with about 110 pictures of people flipping me off. I put it away like I had planned on doing. Then uh, like two years later, I guess, uh, was when I went out with Toto. And I thought that was really kind of fun. So I got everybody involved in the Toto tour. Well, eventually it got up to about 300 pictures. And when things get into that many pictures, it suddenly isn't like an incidental picture. It's taken on a purpose. And um, so I started getting pictures everywhere of people. And I've got everybody from Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Jeff Beck, I've got Charlie Watts in the book because um, oh. I did an album project with Charlie. I've got Merle Haggard and Christofferson and Willie Nelson all in one shot together. Um, and I, I ended up with over 12,000 photographs. And I met a guy at a, at a function who does art books and told him about this. And he said, let's do it. And so I've got this huge coffee table book with about 6,000 pictures of Everybody imaginable. I mean, from Art Garfunkel to Barry Manilow, but um, people like Bernie uh, Bernie Williams, the center fielder for the New York Yankees. Um, I did an album with him, and he's in it, and all these. But also the man on the street, because to me it's about humanity. So there might be somebody who I met who just had, a, you know, I, I took their picture, and they they got a big picture, and on the next page there's Jay Leno, but he's not a huge picture, right? Because I didn't want to have a set, thing saying here's the celebrities. And right. then here's, uh, and to me, there's a finite amount of ways you can give somebody the finger like Jack Black. <laughs> when I got Jack Black, he goes, uh, you want balls or no balls, ah. you know? Um, but the faces are infinite. So to me, the whole thing was really about, I love looking at it just to look at people's faces. And we put together this six pound huge high-end coffee table book. And is it so published? Is it out? It, I published it myself and okay. I have a website for it, okay. which is, uh, I tried to get my name as a domain and somebody owns it. What? And like, you know, could people buy these things up and then they go, well, when you want it, why don't you come uh, to me? And so I said, screw that. Nice. We put yeah. together a website called LelandSklarsBeard.com. Okay. And on, on that website, I have the book and Pete, you can go there and see samples of it. And, um, and there's two, two options. You can buy one that's unsigned or buy one that's signed and personalized to you. So that's the person's call and Christmas is coming up. So, you know, it'd be a yes. 
then I also, we did t-shirts that have my beard on the front of the t-shirt. I've seen those. I've seen those. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And then when I was in college, I was an art major. So we've done high-end limited edition prints of drawings and paintings that I did. And um, so I, I, you know, I went into like a retail business with all this. Right. Um, we're, and we're looking at overseas distribution for the book and stuff. And, uh, and then on the YouTube channel, there's also on in the clubhouse, there's also a store in the clubhouse where I have a whole bunch of different t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and pictures so, that I can do. So I, I ended up, I looked at this period of time as what the hell am I going to do? Me too. Me too. And so rather than sitting and kind of going, woe is me, yeah. I just looked at every option of things and it's been a hard year, um, but it's been creative and fun. And then with the band, um, our album just came out a, a week ago. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we did the album before COVID and it was supposed to be out last November. Okay. And then with COVID, everything, there was no reason to release it. And we're signed to a, a, an American label called Quarto Valley Records. And so we finally just uh, got, got the album released last week. We did a, a, a pre-presentation the night before it was released at the Grammy Museum. What's the name of the band again? So people can and go get it. The Immediate Family. The Immediate Family. We have family. a YouTube channel. We have a website, The Immediate Family Band. Uh, Facebook, we have, we're on all the social media, and, and it's Russ Kunkel, myself, Danny Korchmar, Wadi Wachtel, and another friend, Steve Postel. And man, we're getting like unbelievable reviews in all the magazines and uh, getting airplay on a bunch of the XM radio stations. And uh, and the thing that's crazy about it is Danny Tedesco is doing this this documentary movie about us, Right. Well, during the course of, the, of of this lockdown, we still kept on writing. We were releasing EPs and doing uh, acapella videos and, and, and different things. Well, we went back in the studio. Jackson Browns let us use his studio. And we went in and we did another album. So now we've got an album to come out next year when the documentary film comes out. And we, we're, unless everything goes completely down the crapper, we're supposed to hit the road in November. Hell um, yes. West Man. Coast gigs and then some East Coast gigs and uh, doing another cruise in February if the cruise lines are still working or whatever. So, right. Man, you so. have so many amazing things coming up. Um, I This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you yeah. and uh, all of the listeners, I believe, have... Uh, learned quite a bit about music, about um, listening, about uh, being productive in in difficult times. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm grateful for you, man, and I'm a, a fan of yours. Everybody, well, check out his YouTube page. Uh, the new yeah. record coming out. What's the name of the documentary? Uh, the documentary is also going to be called The Immediate Family, but that'll probably be out in the first quarter of next year. So right now, if they just go check out The Immediate Family, is it's a self-titled album. Okay, cool. Um, cool. And it's just a bunch of old rock and roll farts on the cover. So it's <laughs> <laughs> awesome rock and roll. Farts. But I mean, I, I so appreciate uh, the invite to come talk with you. And any any time, if you need somebody, if somebody cancels on you, need some filler. Uh, give me a shout. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Man, I'm grateful for you again. Um, any last words you want to give our listeners? Um, stay safe. Stay healthy. Um, I, I we, we haven't gone into any of the rants about vaccinations and things like that, but 
be safe, man. I just want everybody to be here. And uh, once we get this all, you know, everybody's healthy and, and, and taken care of, then we can start looking at the thing we love doing the most because too many things are still being canceled and, and postponed because of, of safety. And uh, yeah. so I just, I encourage everybody just for the sake of yourself, your family, your community, get safe and yes. you know how to do it. Yes, sir. And have fun playing. Uh, yeah, all of that. We are, we are so blessed to have a job that brings pleasure to to people and to ourselves. Man, it's a it's a you know I pinch myself every day that I get to do this. Plus, I like pinching myself, so it's you know it's a double win. <laughs> that is our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Stay healthy and stay kind. Spread love and good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. I hope to see you out there sometime soon. Uh, thank you to Dunlop so much for making the show possible. And uh, be sure to check out Base Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers to you. We'll